This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The Mexican but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Venezuelans have protested before, but this time the usually fractured opposition has a consensus leader. Until recently, Guido was relatively unknown, but he's crisscrossed the country speaking against Maduro, asking for support from the international community and Venezuela's powerful military. Who is in charge of Venezuela and why does it matter? Today I'm joined by my friends and colleagues Moises Rendon of CSIS and Eric Farnsworth of the Council of the Americas. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Moises, you just returned from a trip to Berlin, and it was all about blockchain, right? It was about the future of decentralized governance based on decentralized autonomous organizations. And so I was there to talk about how oppressed societies like Venezuela are benefiting from this new technology in so many ways, especially looking ahead, right, the day after. And Eric, I can't pick up a newspaper without seeing you quoted. So uh, even when I ask for a (laughs) non-Eric Farnsworth quotable newspaper, I get one. So you're all over the place. Well, you're generous. I guess it just depends on the issues that you follow and whether they become part of the news cycle. But thanks very much. So we're going to talk about Venezuela today. We have a lot going on in Venezuela, and it's moving really, really fast. So since at least January 10th, Moises, we've essentially had a standoff between Juan Guaido, the legitimate head of the Constituent Assembly, and Nicolas Maduro, the illegitimate president of Venezuela. And those aren't really, for listeners that don't follow Venezuela, those aren't really my definitions. That's according to the Venezuelan constitution. A lot has happened in the last, over the weekend. Tell us what is going on in Venezuela right now. Yes. So this is a different crisis. In the last 20 years, Venezuela has faced different turmoil, different protests, different crises, right? But this is really different. And you see that because you now see millions of Venezuela on the streets, increasing pressure on Maduro. We have a new, young, clean leader that is filling that much-needed leadership gap that we didn't have in the opposition. But also we have the international community on board as never before. So when we when we see these two factors combine at the same time, we see what we have today. So let me, let's get some specifics on that, Moises, because, you know, the international community, to one degree or another, has sort of been engaged in Venezuela. But what we've seen in the last few days is really, as you said, quite significant. We've got a lot of countries now that are officially not recognizing the Maduro government, recognizing another government led by Juan Guaido. So what what does that mean, practically speaking, uh, in terms of who do you deal with? If you're a foreign government or a foreign corporation, for that matter, who do you deal with? Well, I mean, there are a couple of important legal political implications moving forward once you stop recognizing Maduro as the head of state and start recognizing Guaido as the head of the government in Venezuela. And especially when when you have about 40 countries doing so now with the European Union, the Lima Group, the U.S., other countries across the globe are now recognizing Guaido as we speak. Um, so one important factor is what's going to happen with the republic's assets and the bank accounts, the cash that Venezuela still has abroad. So what we're seeing now is that the countries are starting transferring 
all those bank accounts, all those assets from Maduro's control to Juan Guaido and his team control. And that's very significant. This is the first time this is happening. And again, it's isolating Maduro not only diplomatically, but economically, financially. There are a couple of important questions remain because we still have Russia, China, Turkey, Iran. They still support Maduro. So um, again, that's that's going to question on the table. But as as more countries move to recognize Guaido, I think is 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 an important step forward, especially from the economic front. So obviously, among those countries is the United States. Um, and Eric, this is a uh, not necessarily a departure from U.S. policy; it's a continuation of it, but it's a strengthening of it. So. Tell us sort of how um, the United States uh, has put teeth, I think, finally into its Venezuela policy. Well, you're right, Rich. It really is an amplification of U.S. policy, but the trend lines were evident uh, for some time. What gave uh, the impetus to a somewhat of a departure now uh, was the fact that on January 10th of this year, the mandate of Nicolas Maduro expired. And although he ran an election for himself last May, May of 2018, uh, that election was not recognized as free or fair by the elements of the international community, including the United States. So uh, the fact is that according to the Venezuelan constitution, he's now, as Moises was saying, the illegitimate leader of Venezuela. And that really opened the door for the United States and other other countries uh, around the world and institutions like the OAS and and others to just take a firmer stance and to begin to uh, reevaluate whether sanctions against individuals, which had been essentially the U.S. approach to this point, uh, was enough or whether institutions uh, needed to be sanctioned, uh, primarily PDVSA, which is the national energy company, uh, and the financial flows to the institutions of the state. The thinking being that if you restrict some of those flows, uh, then it becomes more difficult for Maduro as the de facto leader to uh, maintain his power through oppression and through um, the uh, continued loyalty of the security forces if, for example, he can no longer pay them. So, you know, that's a theory that we have to play out, see if it's relevant, see if it's successful. Uh, But I think it was really that uh, change in the Venezuelan electoral uh, map that uh, gave the opening for the international community to take much firmer uh, positions. So I know that the uh, Department of Treasury just came out with new rules. I think it was yesterday. And so, you know, a lot of people are studying them now. But if I understand it correctly, um, I guess as of now, as we speak, uh, any money that is that is going to uh, the Venezuelan government is now going to some sort of escrow account. And new contracts... Um, uh, you can sign a new contract up till April, is my understanding. But then after that, you know, I don't know what happens. No contracts or, or what. And then meanwhile, what's happening is you've now got apparently ships of oil, Venezuelan oil in the Gulf, not knowing where to go, <laughs> um, whether to deliver the oil, you know, wh- whose instructions do they file, follow, et cetera. And this is starting to move um, at least domestic oil markets uh, because the Venezuelan crude is, is different than, you know, lighter shale. Um this seems to have had the effect of, of making a lot of the talk that we've seen over the last two years very, very real. Uh, so what do you think, uh, and, and Moises and I have talked about this a lot, you know, when are we going to finally reach that final chapter? Are we, are we seeing that now in, in that as the money dries up, um, as there's sort of chaos in, in Venezuela's primary export commodity, is this finally going to be enough to, to unravel the, the entire scheme? 
Well, that's precisely the question that needs to be asked. Is this the tipping point? But I don't think that we can assume that it is necessarily. I mean, people whose sole goal in life to gain and maintain power can remain in power for a long time if they uh, have control of the basic institutions of the state, primarily including the security forces. I mean, look, Robert Mugabe stayed in office in Zimbabwe for years, despite hyperinflation in an economy that was completely wrecked, uh, and they didn't have oil, etc. So, you know, if you want to play this out, it's there's nothing at this point that would require Maduro to leave. And I think that is the challenge that the international community is facing, in part, because, Rich, I mean, you're, you're quite right. You can restrict the financial flows, but, you know, there are still other sources of finance primarily those countries that continue to recognize him, uh, namely China and Russia and Turkey. And, you know, my contention is that all of those countries have interests in Venezuela, but not all of the interests are the same. And from my perspective, that provides an opening, particularly with China, to have a, a meaningful conversation. You know, if you take uh, the Chinese leadership as prim primarily pragmatic on Venezuela, in other words, they don't really care if, if Maduro is the leader or not. What they care about is the oil and getting repaid in terms of their loans. Then you can probably have a, a relevant conversation with Beijing to suggest that their best chance over the long term of maintaining their position in Venezuela is with a democratically elected government that's supported by the people, and that's clearly not Nicolas Maduro. So if you can get the Chinese in particular to rethink their position, and I think they're going to come under increasing pressure as as the weight of international recognition clearly has shifted now toward Guaido, I think then you have a, a, a possibility there. The, the question of Russia is a lot more complicated. I don't think it's primarily a financial scenario. I think they have their own interests uh, in terms of sanctions busting internationally, trying to uh, make life inconvenient for the United States in the Western Hemisphere. Certainly there's an oil play there. But, um, but if you can really get uh, China in particular, to rethink its posture, I think then it could become a tipping point. Absent that, you probably need uh, street protests that just simply go out of control that the government cannot uh, control or uh, a significant changing of colors uh, by the military and security forces from Maduro to Guaido. So on that point, Moises, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a Venezuelan military officer, mid-grade or senior-grade officer, what at this point is in it for you? I mean, why why would you continue to support the Maduro government? I mean, clearly you can kind of see what's coming. What sort of leverage does Maduro have of those officers? I'm talking, you know, mid-level to senior level ranks. Um, why are they still sticking around? There's a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty as well. If I really try hard to put myself in their spot, what's coming next is not clear to them. And they themselves have been involved in criminal activities, narco-trafficking, money laundering, corruption, human rights violations. So despite the effort of President Juan Guaido to offer an amnesty law and trying to clarify that many of those crimes are going to be dealt not under a normal justice system but in a ju transitional justice type of process, it's still not clear to them what are the implications, how far the amnesty law can go, and more importantly, perhaps, if the international community supports, accept those. So that, that's a big question mark for them right now. The other one, like I mentioned, is fear. And that's where the Cubans are playing a huge role right now in the intelligence, especially within the military. Just in the last three weeks, we have about more than 200 military officials in prison. And again, this is well known in Venezuela. Anyone that you can speak to, there are a lot of discontent. They're not 
happy with the situation, but they are afraid that they or their families may be jailed or, or even killed. That's a reality that we see. So let's talk about Juan Guaido. What do we know about him? You know, from what I see in the press, the guy seems like a very polished, well-spoken, yeah. smart guy, uh, pretty young, 35 years old. So what do what do Venezuelans know about him? What do you know about him? Do you know him personally? I mean, uh, he's roughly your same age. For those of our listeners who think that Moises, because of his wisdom, has got to be in his 50s, no. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> he's, he's a lot closer to Juan Guaido than me. What, what's his background? What can we expect? And then one follow-up question. Do you think he's just a transitional figure? Do you think years from now ago, what was the name of that guy that briefly held power for six months? Or is he the real deal? Is he around to stay? Juan Guaido is coming from a, um, a young generation in Venezuela that was not involved in politics until recently, until Chavez was in power. And um, there actually, there is a well-known term in Venezuela that we use that is Generation 2007. In 2007, you saw a student led movement that put an effort on the streets for the first time to block Chavez's attempt to change the constitution. And they were quite successful to mobilize not only the students from all over the country, but all the population. And in a time where the, the, where the opposition was divided, where there wasn't even a vision, a route, where, where to go, the students step up. And that's where Juan Guaido and others like Juan Guaido are coming from. This young generation who are uh, who were tired of the Chavez populist policies and decide to get involved in politics. And again, he's a 35 years old. He's coming from La Guaira, uh, which is a coastal state in Venezuela, about one hour away from Caracas by car. Uh, he's he's coming from a lower middle income family, and, and he's very humble. The way he speaks is very simple, and that's why he's connecting with a lot of people in Venezuela. And and again, all of what's going on inside of Venezuela is not because of the opposition. It's because of Juan Juan Guaido himself. He's really connecting with a lot of people that were tire of where the opposition were standing before this all happened. So it sounds like he could be around for us. It sounds like this guy has a natural political ability, but also sort of the background to suggest he could be a unifying yeah. figure. If he's successful and he really push forward, I think he may become an icon and a symbol for Venezuela's future. And the question is, is he going to run for the elections if there is free and fair elections in Venezuela? I don't think so. I mean, he will have to resign <laughs> to be the interim president in order to run for president. So I don't think he's going to be the next president of Venezuela. But again, in the future, why not? All right, let's back up now and look at this uh, from the viewpoint of U.S. policy. And I got to say, Eric, this strikes me as somewhat of an anomaly for this administration in the sense that in almost every corner of the world, the Trump administration has indicated desire to pull back. You know, whether you're talking about our allies like South Korea or NATO, the Middle East, Iraq, etc. But in Venezuela, uh, you know, there's the, the administration has been forward leaning. It's policy it has pursued. I would characterize as something we might have seen out of a President Jeb Bush, a President Ted Cruz, even a President Hillary Clinton, certainly a President Marco Rubio. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of like a, a throwback to the kind of internationalist mindset. The other thing that strikes me about this policy, and, and you might disagree, it seems to be fairly coherent, fairly coordinated, um, as, as much as you can get coordinated action, right, at that level between state and defense and NSC and the, and the White House. Um, 
am I missing something here? I mean, I, I just take, I'll just give you one example. Look at the way that we've handled Turkey and Erdogan, right? Strong man, country kind of going down the tubes, losing its democratic spirit. President Trump has made clear, nothing to see here. Let's move on. Venezuela, opposite. What is part of the Venezuela equation from the White House's view that is not in other parts of the world? Well, the first thing is, and both you and I have served in White Houses, uh, is not to expect uh, full consistency in any U.S. foreign policy at any time. So that's the first uh, thing we should put aside. But in all seriousness, I think that you have really highlighted an important point, And there are any number of reasons why I think Venezuela is a little bit different, not the least of which is geographic proximity, certainly political interest, um, the uh, leadership in the Senate of some very uh, strong and passionate uh, voices uh, who have moved the White House, frankly, in a direction that uh, it's willing to go, uh, some individuals within the administration who are passionate about uh, Venezuela and, and Latin America. But I also think, um, you know, Latin America itself is somewhat different in foreign policy. And I've made this case a lot um, uh, to greater or lesser impact. I mean, Latin America is a region that, uh, for all the right reasons, uh, has committed itself to democracy. And each country, except Cuba, has signed the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Each country has taken on obligations of democracy and behavior um, that it uh, says it will abide by. Uh, and uh, Venezuela has clearly not lived up to those terms. Now, you know, that's a pretty thin read to, uh, to hang your policy on, but Latin America is not the Middle East. Latin America is not the South China Sea. You don't have the same strategic overlay in the region that you do in other parts of the world, and therefore uh, a values-based U.S. policy, I think, is relevant, it is productive, and it is bipartisan. And so one of the things that I find fascinating about this entire Venezuela discussion, uh, you know, overall, is that it's been bipartisan. Uh, and where you have deep political divisions in some of the other uh, parts of the world, whether it's Syria, Afghanistan, you name it, you named several, uh, Turkey, Venezuela, you have almost as much democratic support for a strong approach as you do with uh, Republican support. And I think that is because of the history and geography, like we've said. And, and there's also one, one additional reason, and I think that is the whole uh, humanitarian crisis that has been, uh, frankly, overwhelming some of Venezuela's neighbors and clearly has overwhelmed Venezuela itself. This is not a partisan issue. This is a human issue. It needs to be addressed. We have the capacity to address it. We have friends who want to work with us to address it. And so if you put together all of those uh, strands, uh, it does come up uh, with a policy that, as you say, and I agree with, is, is coherent. Um, the question is, where do you go from here? How, how, how far are you willing to go uh, if Maduro takes the next um, steps, as he's actually threatened to do now, to jail Guaido or to harass his family or supporters? Uh, then that presumably would trigger additional actions. And what are those actions going to be? Um, I think there are still any number of sanctions that could be done to tighten the pressure on the regime, short of the use of force. And I don't think there's a whole lot of appetite for the use of force. And I know you didn't ask that question, but I want to raise it because it is so prominent in the public debate right now. You know, is the U.S. going to send in the Marines or the 101st Airborne? The answer is no under these circumstances, and why would we? There's no reason to do that, uh, and there are any number of steps that could and should be taken before it even comes to that. Nonetheless, that's a very long-winded way of saying, Rich, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, my question was long-winded, so it deserved a long-winded response. One final question for both of you. What about the Cuba angle? 
Uh, now, we know some of folks in town, some people we know and respect and are talking about, you know, Venezuela, the, the, the administration's policy, U.S. administration policy of Venezuela is really just an extension or reflection of our desire to hit Cuba. Um, since, as you mentioned, Moises, Cuba is heavily involved. Their security forces, this is an extension of their meddling in the region. So by uh, going hard on Venezuela, we're really toughening up on Cuba. What, what, do, you, what do you think of that? Moises, start with you. No question, the role of Cuba in Venezuela has been uh, really strong. And, and, and one of the, uh, the reasons why Chavez and Maduro um, perhaps are holding on in power is because the, the Cuba really helped them to, to maneuver all of the different crises that they faced in the last 20 years. Um, the main way the Cubans influenced Venezuela was through this program that is well known, um, Barrio Adentro. So uh, thousands of medical doctors... Uh, were sent to Venezuela in exchange for oil, and 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 that's how it started. It was long time. Today we we have a deeper relationship um, between Cuba and Venezuela. And I tell you my personal story. I was a law clerk in Caracas, and I was he- handing and taking documents, legal documents, to notaries and register offices, and the people who were managing those offices were not Venezuelans, they were Cubans. So I have to talk to them and explain why I needed this document to be sealed as soon as possible. And their accent were Cuban. And every time I talk to a Venezuelan- You don't around, speak Cuban, right? Moisés? No. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, Cubans are very involved on the property um, on the property deeds and the offices in Venezuela. They know who, who owns what in Venezuela. So it's at all levels, security, Property is, is strategic, uh, deplo- uh, politically. Um, so, yeah, they're all over in Venezuela, and it's an issue for, for the new government, for Guaido, how to deal with this issue moving forward. This is one of the strongest ironies I find about the whole Venezuela scenario. I mean, you have so many people out there talking about no U.S. intervention, hands-off Venezuela, all this stuff. And the fact of the matter is Venezuela's sovereignty has been handed over to Cuba now for 20 years. And so, you know, hands-off Venezuela, yeah, but the target there shouldn't be Washington, it should be Havana. Having said that, I still maintain that uh, Venezuela is being looked at for Venezuela uh, reasons, not as a way necessarily to undermine Cuba, but there are definitely connections, as Moises, I think, clearly pointed out. And to the extent that the Venezuelan regime shifts and uh, the Venezuelan government, uh, the new government, recaptures the patrimony of the country, which is to say oil, and stops providing 50,000 barrels or more a day to Cuba free of charge. I mean, that's just a giveaway to, you know, another authoritarian regime. And so if you do have democracy returning to Venezuela, that will impact the ability of the Cuban regime to continue on as before. So there are definitely linkages. But, you know, we have to see how it transpires and uh, not uh, necessarily wrap one up with the other in terms of the conduct of policy. What better way to wrap (laughs) up this program? (laughs) Guaranteeing more hate mail, I know, Eric. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I think we have to call a spade a spade. And uh, somebody's intervening uh, and helping to destroy a previous wealthy democracy. I think they should be called out for it. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me on this show. And I know I'll have you back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.